Our gospel reading from Matthew chapter 22, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted together how to trap Jesus in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in accord with the truth. You are not concerned about gaining anyone's approval because you are not swayed by appearances. So tell us, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus knew their evil purpose and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. They brought him a denarius. He asked them, Whose image and inscription is this? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, Therefore give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. Then they left him and went away. The congregation may be seated. As you may have noticed, yours truly forgot to paste in the correct gospel lesson in today's bulletin, <laughs> like we all noticed. We're going to start in... Um, with our first reading from Daniel before we get to Jesus' words to the Herodians and the Pharisees. And when you get to the book of Daniel, what you're talking about and what you're looking at is like 600 years before Christ is this group of exiles. The foreign power has invaded their land and taken them out of their land. Exactly as God had said, exactly as Moses had said, exactly as Solomon had prayed, that when the Israelites turned away from God, God removed them from that land. And even though they were living in exile, um, you know, thousands of miles away almost from their homeland, even though they are living in exile, God still listened. We see throughout the book of Daniel that Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or the other Hebrew names that are theirs, they would pray toward Jerusalem, and God would hear them. And Daniel and his three associates, they were, you know, of the nobility. They were educated. They had their life in order. They were recognized as being very academically accomplished, and they were brought into the king's service. And at every point... They followed along with what God's prophet had said. Make your home in Babylon. Pray for the prosperity of the city. Plant gardens and marry and be given in marriage. Make your home in Babylon. But you are not Babylonians. That first reading, it looks just like, is this a question of uh, keto versus carnivore versus vegetarian versus vegan? It's just a question of, of vegetables, right? Well, no. Here they are. They've been brought into the king's service. They are going to be living and working in his palace. And it's not a question of simple dietary options. It's a question of this food has been already offered in sacrifice, likely to Marduk, the Babylonian god. This wine has been poured out in sacrifice to this god as well. It hasn't been cooked in a kosher way. It's been probably cooked in the same pan that at one time had, uh, had made um, pulled pork sandwiches or bacon or brats or something like that. 
It hasn't been prepared by anybody who is ceremonially clean. It hasn't been brought in by anybody who was ceremonially clean. It is on utensils that have not been only used for a kosher purpose. And I wonder, when we look at Daniel chapter 1, is there something that we miss in our freedom? Is there something that we miss out on in the daily decision-making that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have to do in order to live and apply their faith in everyday life? But I digress. And they say, well, just give us the regular food. We'll we'll have our own vegetables. And the word there um, could also include grains and other things grown from the ground. So you're thinking like vegetables and bread and water. And God blessed it. Not necessarily because one diet was inherently better, but God blessed it because they stood up in their confession of faith And they stood up early enough that it wasn't a huge issue. It was just give us 10 days, give us 10 days with the diet that we want to follow according to our religious belief. Give us 10 days to continue practicing what we believe. And God will sort it all out for us. And what you see and what we'll see explained for us as we kind of go through these readings is that the believer, the Christian, lives to a higher standard and a higher law. So then you keep going. Our gospel reading, still from Matthew chapter 22, the Herodians get together with the Pharisees. They are bitter enemies, except for the fact that they now have a common enemy in Jesus. The Herodians, who are the political party wanting to prop up King Herod and to encourage um, obedience to that local government. And the Pharisees, who are upset that a non-Jewish man is on the throne and that non-Jewish people are in their land. And they get together and they come to Jesus and it looks so, it's so obvious and nearly ham-handed, if that's a word you can use talking about a uh, Jewish attempt to trap Jesus. It's so obvious when these two groups come to Jesus that it's like, you don't, guys don't even have to start, you're not going to win this one. But they've got the trap. Is it proper to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And wouldn't it be great if Jesus just said, you know what, believers, Christians, you are not part of this world, you don't have to pay taxes anymore, and that 30% of your income is now yours to distribute as you see fit. But he doesn't. He says, show me the coin. And it's not just, well, here's here's a George Washington or here's a Benjamin Franklin or here's a Grover Cleveland, but a coin with its inscription that says, Caesar the God. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? It's not simple civic duty. It's the exact same train of thought as the Jewish people who are spread across the Roman kingdom where it, it, it's not that big of a deal, right? That Caesar has an altar in every single town and city 
And all it is is just walk by and, and you can pay your, your, you know, your small cost and you can grab a pinch of incense and toss it in the fire and everybody sees that and it's a civic holiday and you can offer that little pinch of incense to Caesar, uh, Caesar the God, but don't worry, we're, we're believers, we can do whatever we want because we've got the freedom, right? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? If he says no, the Herodians are going to go running off and saying, oh, he is, he is asking for rebellion. If he says yes, the Pharisees are like, we've got him. We've got him now. He is advocating that we offer offerings to a foreign god, this foreign idol worshiper, Caesar, who calls himself a god, and surely that is grounds for blasphemy, for stoning, for death. Show me the coin. Eat the food. Whose inscription is on it? Caesar the god. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And normally that's like as much as we think about it. You know, we sit down to write a, a quarterly tax payment if um, you're like a pastor of a church and you pay taxes quarterly or a small business and you pay taxes quarterly or you look at your, your statement that you get on your paycheck and you see the part that was uh, portioned off for public works programs. And we understand Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. This is the part that I have delegated to Caesar. This is the part that God, who is above me in all things, that he has given us this government for our good and for our guidance. And in that sense, it can be a joy. Even as we see the, the numbers and the math all work out, it can be a joy to say, this is how I serve God as well, by paying my taxes and God willing that these taxes are used for a good purpose to help provide for my fellow citizen, provide things like you know, good water and good roads and, and maybe some uh, social programs that help those less fortunate. And about that, is that, that is about the extent that we think about it. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Okay, done. Give to God what is God's, and God gets the other part, God gets the leftover, God gets, um, God gets my heart. God gets my attention. I don't, I'm not invested in politics the same way that I am invested in what my Jesus has to say. Maybe. Because when he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, the reverse is also true. What he's really getting at, don't give to Caesar what is not Caesar's. That Caesar calls himself a god and Caesar has an external ability and right from God to um, use the power of law to regulate society, to restrain evil. Caesar has the external authority to um, set up order and good government. Caesar has the authority to collect taxes. But Caesar does not deserve or get the heart, the devotion, the religion, the faith. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but don't give to him what is not his. And you start to see where this is going. That the believers in Babylon um, live their life according to a higher law. That it wasn't simply, here is my obligation and I'll do it because I have the freedom to, or I'll do it because that's what makes my life easier now. But rather, here is the obligation that I have to a government that God has placed over me. 
and I will obey them as far as I can, but I have a higher purpose of confessing Christian truth. And you keep going. And you go back to the founding documents of our nation, um, where even the, the first of those Ten Amendments in the Bill of Rights enshrines within it the um, uh, five different rights. You know, we normally talk about freedom of speech. We also have freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, freedom of association, and one other that isn't coming to mind right now. <laughs> freedom of the press. There we are. And that's a good thing. I am in favor of the First Amendment, and I could talk about that all day too. But the idea here is that we don't submit to the government and simply because it has given us the particular um, rights that we have. Because at least when that, when that Bill of Rights was written and that First Amendment was there, there was a merger again. A merger between how we live our lives and how we live our faith but it was a merger that pulled Christians back into politics. That pulled Christians back into politics to say, this is actually my identity, and all I have to do is, if I know my rights and I know the law, then I can just do whatever I want. And to keep going. And shortly, right around the time of World War I, the Wisconsin Synod and the Missouri Synod and a couple of others um, actively campaigned against... Um, candidates in Wisconsin who are trying to require English in all of the schools in Wisconsin. It was a political move by this political party, and they said, you know what, um, here we are, we've got all these immigrants who have been coming to the United States for the last 50 to 60 years from Germany, but now we're at war with Germany, and so here's an easy way to, to stamp out any cultural uh, significance. We're going to require in the state of Wisconsin that every single school teaches its children in English. Now, you might know that um, the United States doesn't have an official language, and so all of our official documents can be translated, and they're still official in that language. But when this came out, the Wisconsin Synod um, encouraged its pastors to write to the local newspapers, and their version of Forward in Christ, the Gemeindeblatt, uh, their version of Forward in Christ published article after article saying you need to oppose this at every single point because, because this attempt to compel all of our parish schools to teach only in English will mean the end of parish schools. And it just so happened, you know, that the, um, the opposing party won in a landslide that the Wisconsin Synod was able to retain its schools in teaching in the language that they chose. And eventually, obviously, we made the transition to speaking in English. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. Christians obey a higher law and that there is a greater purpose. And the last, the last little bit of history before we get into Romans 13 is a guy named Lyndon Baines Johnson. <laughs> You've probably heard of him, too. Um, when he was running for Senate, he was opposed by what we would call a nonprofit group. And despite their opposition, he won. It was a religious nonprofit, but then he said, you know what, we need to find a way to make sure that all these nonprofits aren't um, campaigning for candidates. And in a sense, I agree with that. But they passed the law um, called the Johnson Rule or something like that. And it was passed with only one dissenting vote. 
and it said that nonprofits, including churches, you know, you could talk about, um, talk about the issues. Talk about issue number one, two, three, four, five, eighty-seven, who cares? But don't talk about the people. And you look at Scripture, and that doesn't fit. Here is Nathan confronting King David. Here is Elijah confronting Ahab. Here is Isaiah talking to Hezekiah. Here is John the Baptist saying, King Herod, it's it's not right of you to take your brother's wife. Here is Jesus. Go tell that fox. I will preach here and here and here until I get to Jerusalem. You didn't come here for a history lesson. And you didn't even come here for a civics lesson. (laughs) But the question, how do Christians confess their faith today? And it would be very simple to say, as people who have grown up in the time since LBJ was in the Senate, it would be very simple to say, with no knowledge of the history behind it, no knowledge of the ideas behind it, it would be very simple to say, you know, just don't talk politics here. It's just like my family gatherings at Thanksgiving. You don't talk religion. You don't talk politics. And we'll all smile and pretend that this is all good and great and wonderful. And I don't see it. That, yes, you and I are called to a higher calling, and we live under a higher law. And that God has taken some of the authority that he has delegated to parents in the fourth commandment and in Genesis 2, and he has delegated that and exercises some of that in the government. That the government isn't some nebulous entity that exists on its own, but it derives its power and authority from the God who instituted the family. And so as Christians, we understand that, first of all, that we are citizens of heaven, citizens of the kingdom of Christ, but we also don't ignore the fact that we're also citizens of a country. Like the believers in Babylon, pray for the good of your community. Live here, plant gardens here, serve in its various capacities. Like the Christians in Babylon, we live under a higher law, and the question, the question actually has a couple of questions, like, have we gotten our politics and our faith so intertwined that we can't tell the difference? Or have we gotten our politics and our faith so intertwined that the, the church has simple, a simple reputation of um, being a red church or a blue church? I get that one a lot. Have we gotten our politics and our faith so intertwined that we live under the law the same way that the government exercises the law of what, just tell me what to do, tell me what not to do, and then I can just go on my way without a thought, without any understanding, without any dialogue, and, and then it's just a matter of who gets all the gold stars in this political debate. Who's going to win the argument? Who's going to own the other side? And where is the place of Christian confession? Where is the place of Christian confession? It's not just when we stand up and say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. And the place of Christian confession isn't just when you, when you talk with a friend or a neighbor to say, this is what I believe. I believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead. And that simple fact changes everything. That your Christianity also influences the causes you support, 
and the way that we think about things. Your Christianity also influences the fact that you and I understand that the world around us can only ever operate under the law. The law of um, punishment on the wrongdoer, the law of threats of punishment, the law of a system of rewards for those who do good. That's not gospel, and it's never going to be. And in that sense, um, a government can never be godly because it doesn't exercise the gospel. And it is only godly because it is instituted by God himself who tells Christians to submit. Submit. I've been carefully avoiding a particular word here because it usually gets mixed in. That word is obey. We often substitute one for the other. Even talking about Romans chapter 13, obey the government. No, it says submit to the government. Submission is this undergoing, this ongoing attitude that says, I will respect this government, I will respect this person, I will respect this president, not because I think so highly of him, but because God is the one who has placed that person over me. I will respect the debate that is going on here, and I will work alongside my fellow Christians, not because I agree with the law, but because it is the law of the land to a degree, and God is the one who has allowed that to happen. But that Christians live under a higher law. That even if something is legal, or something has been decriminalized, which doesn't mean legal, but even if something is legal, doesn't make it right for a Christian to do. On one level, I don't care what the Supreme Court says is the law or is not the law. I don't care what the governor or the, the new speaker of the house, whoever that happens to be, um, I don't care what they say is the law of the land or not. Because as a Christian, you and I have a responsibility to live as Christ people under a higher law, a law of love for the neighbor, a law of love for even the, the youngest and most vulnerable of our neighbors. And as a Christian, understanding that, that life in a sinful world means a life of a world of sin and death and pain, and at the same time, perhaps, you know, we could have a discussion about the value of having some restraint on evil. You could talk about the issues there, <laughs> like issue number one. Can we just all agree that it's not right to kill babies? But the next step isn't just to say, don't do that. The next step, the Christian under a higher law says, how can we help? How can we as a congregation help to support those who are in need, support those who are stuck in a situation that they hadn't planned on, how can we as a Christian community reassert that children belong to the parents, not to the government? How can we as a Christian community say that we live under a higher law, the law of love, and that our purpose isn't simply to compel my neighbor's obedience to a law, but my purpose is to confess Jesus Christ? And that's kind of the fallacy. That's the fallacy of this. We had this uh, discussion at pastor's conference this last Monday. I'll give you like five seconds to guess which side of the discussion I was on. 
<laughs> we had this discussion at pastor's conference, and, um, and there was uh, you know, some discussion about you know, the, the issues in Ohio. And, um, and some guys were like, you know what, we just preached Jesus. And it almost ended there until some other guy who shall remain nameless stood up and said, but realistically, how can you preach Jesus without preaching about the area that we live in, without preaching about the real issues that apply? That if we all just gather in our churches and say, Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose again, he's coming again, and then it doesn't affect my confession in the community, then what good is that faith? And so the question as citizens of Christ's kingdom, who are citizens of the place where we live, the community, how do we confess Christ? How do we confess the truth that this Jesus is king above all? I think it starts with um, repentance for all of our uh, side-taking and um, banner-waving repentance that says, oh my goodness, I have been so utterly obsessed with politics as if that is the only thing that I need to worry about in this life. Repentance for the idea that just because the government says something is, um, is good or legal or not criminal, at least in this state, that therefore I don't have to think about it anymore and I can do whatever I want because hashtag Christian freedom, that's not how it works. That Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they submitted to the government. They participated in that government. They didn't rebel, but they resisted when the government would compel them to transgress their confession. They resisted and said, well, no. <laughs> and whatever the consequences may be, maybe they would lose their job, maybe be sent back to Israel. How would you like that? Here's a paycheck for $400,000 a year with, um, and all you have to do is tell the king what he wants to hear, when he wants to hear it. And Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing up and saying, eh, you can take your paycheck because... I don't want that for lunch. <laughs> Dear Christian, who is a citizen? Second, Christian first. Now there at that baptismal font, Jesus gave you a citizenship that lasts forever. That here at his table, he reminds and reasserts his forgiveness to you and plants that truth deeply within your heart that even though you do live in this community and you do have multiple layers of government above you, <laughs> that you have a king who is above them all. And that your confession of faith means, yes, submitting to that government, but also having the perception to say, you know, I'm going to step back from a full-hearted obedience. That there's a difference between submission and obedience. That we don't live our lives on the basis of what is legal or not, but on the basis of a Jesus who made you his own. That the life you live is um, a life that we live in fellowship with one another as people who have been bought and brought together. That 
for the time of your life here, it would be very simple and oh so easy to say, you know what, I'm not even going to think about my Christian confession and whatever they say I can and can't do, well then, okay, then, you know, maybe that's not my personal preference, but you do you and I'll do what I want to do. But that's not how a Christian acts. The Christian says, I need to confess my faith today, which means I have a higher allegiance to this Jesus Christ I need to confess my faith today for the sake of his church tomorrow. I need to confess my faith today for the sake of the children that will be baptized here. And it's not going to be easy, and it's not going to be simple. And even if I were to talk for 35 minutes, um, it's not something that you can probably grab and grasp completely in a sermon on Sunday. But that question having had a glimpse of history. May God grant that your citizenship first thought of as Christian. And when you see that you've been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, then asking, how do I confess this faith? How do I serve my neighbor in love? Amen. (laughs) 